Dear Keenan, this is the hardest letter that I've ever written, and I'm certain it will be the hardest letter that you've ever read. For if you are reading my words, then I must be gone. Something unpredictable and horribly unimaginable has happened to me in Antarctica. At this moment, I wish my arms could reach out from these pages and wrap around you to comfort you like no other. I would take your hand in mine, whisper in your ear, tell you I love you and everything will be okay. Of all the things that I've ever done in my life, nothing compares to being your mom. Nothing. How could I choose Antarctica over spending the rest of my life loving you and watching you grow into a man? I promised to be safe. I promised I would be back. Part of living, really living, is to continuously grow and learn and challenge your limits. I believe to my core that the best way to live a good life, a full life, a happy life, is to seek challenge and to take risks, try new things, and push into the unknown. It takes a certain kind of person, a bold one, a strong one, a wild one, to pursue an adventure like the one taken on by today's guest. In 2014, Chris Fagan and her husband Marty left their 12-year-old son at their home in Washington State, and they flew to Antarctica. There, they spent 48 days skiing to reach the South Pole, setting a world record. I'm Shelby Stanger, and this is Wild Ideas Worth Living. Chris Fagan calls herself ordinary, like anyone else, but she spent decades pursuing wild ideas. She met her husband while climbing Denali in Alaska and guided. She founded an innovation consulting company. She's run several ultra marathons. But the idea for her wildest adventure, it came with the realization that she and her husband's bodies, they were aging. The planet was warming. Antarctica was changing. They decided it was time to push themselves to the edge of the world now. I just want to start with why. Like, why did you have that wild idea at age? Can we say your age? Yeah. I was, well, I was 48 when we went and my husband was 50. Heck yeah. Mm Mm-hmm. Why is the biggest question that you can imagine of this uh, expedition? And um, I think the biggest reason why is the core of our relationship and our family is adventure and living adventurously. My husband and I had met adventuring. And for, for, you know, at that point, we'd been married for about 15, 20 years. And we, we, wanted to take it to the next level. We had done all kinds of ultra running and mountaineering, and this was really the pinnacle. We were in the prime shape of our lives. And we thought we we, we were starting to feel creaks and cracks in our body as we were getting older, and my husband's knee was acting up, and we thought, 
if, if there's any time that we can do this, it's probably now. And we really struggled with when we should go. Should we wait till our son's in college, which at that time my son was 12. And so, you know, we just thought, I don't, I don't think our bodies are going to be able to, may not be able to do it at that time frame. So yeah. And we wanted to see the most wild, pristine, otherworldly place we could imagine on earth and experience it firsthand where few people have ever gone and do it on our own and not have any guides and really see what are we really made of? Are we up to this challenge? Are we able to do this? Can we prepare ourselves to be safe? And, you know, it was just the most wild, imaginable thing we could do. And so we just wanted to challenge ourselves before it was too late. How do you find yourself staring down 570 miles of skiing and trekking over a landscape of barren snow in 20 below temperatures? Well, it started with Chris's love for the outdoors, which blossomed as a child growing up in Illinois. Tell us a little bit about what you were like as a kid and how you became an endurance athlete. I grew up in... Champaign, Illinois and Des Moines, Iowa. So I was a Midwestern flatlander and you really had to just invent your own excitement. You know, there was no, there was no mountains. There was really, there weren't lakes nearby, but I was an outdoor girl. I just found that I fit outside and I like just wandering around as a kid, riding my bike. Those were the days when, you know, your parents are like, go ahead, we'll see you in 5 p.m. when it's time for dinner. Then somehow you moved to Seattle. And mm-hmm. is it in Seattle where really this adventurous spirit to like go climb Denali in Alaska with some girlfriends was born? You know, I would back up a step and it really was born when I had some girlfriends after getting a professional job, maybe four or five years after working, they decided to ask for a leave of absence from their job and go travel by themselves. And I thought that was the coolest idea on earth. I just thought, oh my gosh, I need to do that. And so I asked for a leave of absence for my advertising job and traveled for four months by myself. And that was really what launched me. I went to the Cook Islands, to New Zealand, to Australia, Thailand, Malaysia, and Japan by myself. And it really gave me the confidence to say, I can do anything I want. I came back. I was living in Chicago at the time and said, you know what? I have to live. I have to live where there's mountains. I have to live where there's ocean. I have to live where can be outside where it's accessible out my door. And then I just put it out there and jobs started coming to me. I had a job offer in Seattle and Denver and I just like didn't know anywhere, anybody in either place. And I'm like, I'm going to Seattle, moved to Seattle. And at the same time, I thought I need to build a job where I can be flexible and do what I want to do and not always walk into an office. So about two years into that job I took, I decided I must start my own consulting agency. After founding her own company, Chris finally had the flexibility to go adventuring. The thing is, her adventures weren't just everyday hikes or camping trips. Chris was climbing Denali in Alaska unguided. But she maintains she was just an ordinary person. And ordinary people can do extraordinary things. For those of you listening to this podcast, you can't see Chris, but she looks like 
just this cute mom. She's not like completely jacked and scary and intimidating. I mean, you look like one of my buddies, but like any mom at school, it's so cool. You know, that's what's interesting is one of the things my husband and I have found is that we are just ordinary people. We get up in the morning and we have jobs. I have a consulting company that I have been working at for 25 years. My husband goes to a tech job. We're not professional athletes. You know, a lot of times you you hear these things and people, I mean, that's their whole life. We live on a regular block with neighbors and, you know, friends and kids and our son, you know, has grown up in this environment. So it's just part integrated into who we are as people who want to live an adventurous life, but don't have the vision of adventure is our livelihood. Mm, That's important when it's not your job. Mm -hmm. It's just part of you. What does adventure do for you that makes you keep coming back to it? Adventure and and just literally being outside is is where I just feel the most alive and in touch with myself and the world around me. So I just find if I'm in my office too long, I just need to get outside and, and just get a breath of fresh air. It literally wipes my mind clear, become more present, become more in tune with what it is that I, I want out of life, out of this day, out of this moment, and, and just gets any frustration and, and stress that I have will leave my body, especially running. I mean, I started out as, you know, where I really, my stronghold in the outdoors became, you know, like decade plus of ultra running. And you can just, your mind and body can transcend when you're outside running. So you're speaking my language. For me, the outdoors is where I solve problems. Mm. It's where I go for stress relief, for fun. And it's where I met my partner. I met him surfing in Costa Rica. And you met your husband in Denali. That's hot. Can you <laughs> tell me about this? <laughs> yeah, you know, same idea. I, I, I moved to Seattle and decided I wanted to learn how to mountaineer. You know, I took these mountaineering classes through the mountaineers in Seattle for two years, became super proficient, decided, you know, me and these two other women were going to climb Denali in Alaska. And what happened was we were on the mountain the first day we arrived. Other teams arrived in a similar time frame and other teams arrived in my husband's team arrived that same day and he was three men and we just happened to a lot arrive at the mountain on the same day and and we started moving up the mountain and so if you know anything about this mountain there's you know base camp and then there's four camps and um so you're kind of moving up when the weather's good all teams move and we were just on the same path so we just started talking to each other through tents Literally, when you're in a storm, you're sitting in your tent for two, three, four days, and you're just talking to anybody around you. And we were talking through tents, and Marty would talk to our our tent of, how are you ladies doing over there? And pretty soon it became, hey, Chris, how are you doing over there? And so, you know, literally that's how it happened. But I was like laser focused on climbing. And so he was he. flirting with you between tents. <laughs> yeah. At one point he was like baking pancakes because we were all hunkered down in a storm. Hey, you guys want some pancakes over there? You know, throws over some pancakes. That was how, yeah. I really don't know how it worked other than we both summited the same day. We hugged on the mountain ridge. He, his team summited. We were coming down. We were 30 minutes apart hugged, got down to base camp, 
he said, no matter what, we need to like have a beer in Talkeetna together. And then we literally decided to stay an extra day when all of our teammates flew off. And then that was it. He moved to Seattle six weeks later from Hawaii. I just got goosebumps. <laughs> I love a good adventure love story. Yeah. And, you know, it was, you know, we were both in our early 30s and just, you know, you just know. You just know. And you guys have a baby. Yeah. Keenan. Yes. Who at the time when you decided to go to South, the South Pole was 12, right? That is correct. Yeah. That's, that's, a, that's a pretty young age to leave a kid at home. Yeah when you want to go off and do an adventure that has some risks. Mm -hmm. How did you guys decide to do that? When the idea first emerged, we were, it was three years prior. So Keenan was nine years old and we really, it took us a year to vet the idea. Can we do this? Can we be safe? Is it too risky? Because when the first, when the idea first came up, it was not a yes. It was a hard stop. Oh my gosh, what? You know, Marty brought up the idea. Hey, what do you think about going to the South Pole? But he wasn't even convinced. It, it, he just sort of had this, why not us? We have all this experience now. Why not us? And so then we explored that question for a full year. And we vetted our um, experience and our skills. And we we met with polar uh, guides. We actually went on some training with them to say, are we crazy to think we can do this? Or do you believe that we have the skill sets? And they vetted us. And that was a huge hurdle. And then they said, yes, I actually do think you guys have what it takes. So yes, so year, yes, we're, okay, we can do this. Then two years of really hardcore training and planning and, you know, bringing my son along. So at first, he really was reluctant about the idea. But for three years of watching us plan and make sure we're going to be safe and that he's going to be safe at home. And we had this whole planning for him at home, for friends and fam mostly family to come in and be with him at home, engaging his school to be part of this adventure. And we went in and, you know, did this whole assembly with the school prior to leaving and they had a bulletin board with tracking us every day. So you guys were like the cool parents. We were, hopefully, you know. To put it into perspective, how far is the distance that you're going to trek? And just give me a little bit of background on the South Pole. And For, why the South Pole? Yeah. So, you know, two places that we thought were the most wild on earth to try. And we're really good endurance athletes. Is the North Pole or the South Pole? We chose the South Pole because it actually is a bit safer. And also as... Some of your listeners may know, you know, climate change is really affecting both places, but particularly the North Pole, there's no land. It's just solid ice. So at the at the South Pole in Antarctica, it's land covered by massive ice. So even if it's melting, you're still able, there's not these massive open leads of water that you can fall into. So less dangers. There's not polar bears, uh, which are in, in, in the Arctic. So that, that was a little less risky. Our journey would take us from the edge of Antarctica to the South Pole, 570 miles. So to be official in Antarctic type of adventures that you want to go solo, unsupported, unguided, unaided, you need to start at the edge of the continent and then and make it to the South Pole with no with no help to kind of fit into that category. So that means you had to carry all of your own gear, mm -hmm. all of your own food, all of your own, well, you'd melted snow, I'm guessing, for water. Mm -hmm. Yes. 
How heavy was that? Our sleds, we each carried uh, a sled that was about seven feet long, three feet wide, and they were 220 pounds. So each of us had 220 pounds. You're pretty small. You're like 5'4". That's right. Guessing 230. That's impressive. Three years of preparation couldn't completely prepare Chris and her husband for the adventure that lay ahead. Some of their friends and family, they didn't understand why they would choose to put themselves in this position, especially as parents. We've talked to a lot of different adventures in the past three seasons, and they all deal with preparation and goal setting differently. Chris explained her approach in a way that really resonated with me. So eventually, your kid's on board, you get other people on board. Was there anybody, maybe even your parents, who said you're crazy for going to the South Pole? So when we decided to, to announce that we're going, there was clear camps of this is awesome. We totally get what you're doing. And then there was clear uh, apprehension from a different from another group. And, and right, rightfully so, you know, until you really understand the painstaking ways in which we were making sure that we were going to be safe. You when you just hear it, you think, Ah, uh, you know, that's irresponsible. I don't think you should do that. That's scary. So that camp, it, it, you, we until they sort of allowed us to explain where we're coming from, then a lot of people came around. Like my brother was one of them. He, he lives up in northern Alaska, and he knows cold intimately. And he's just like, I don't, I don't get it. It's just going to be cold, a big struggle. Why would you do this? I don't understand. And who's going to take care of Kina when you guys die? And I'm like, oh, some people just don't understand why some athletes want to struggle. You know, why do we want to struggle? And why do we want to put ourselves in harm's way? What's that answer? It's a hard answer to explain. And that's one reason I chose the, the hard road of writing a book, because it really took a whole book to explain it. But the short answer is, we are on this planet to live right? Fully. And once you figure out what your, what your thing is, that makes you feel most alive. You know, I feel like that's what you need to go do. Like, ultimately, for our son, it was to, to model for him what it looks like to live, you know, a full life that you feel makes you feel most alive. And that's how you're going to contribute the most in the world, I believe. So the judgment that we felt from, you know, mostly, you know, mostly it was people we didn't know. That was the judgment, but the judgment that you felt, you know, it was hard, but then we overcame it because, you know, you kind of just go, why are we doing this? You know, why are we doing this? You know, literally you're asking yourself for years as, as you're planning. It wasn't a simple you know, simple decision. But then watching our son come along on the journey with us and his mindset shift as he was part of it and he could feel our excitement. And for him to see his parents put in so much effort and hard work towards a goal, you can't explain that to a child. You model it for a child. And in the end, all of our worst fears did not come to fruition. 
the guilt that you feel as a parent sometimes in doing something for yourself. And we all deal with this, whether you're just, you know, should I go back to work? You know, should I leave my son for a few days? All of that guilt, I think sometimes it's society putting that on us, especially as women. It was much more prevalent for me than my husband, even though we were both leaving my son. The judgment was more on me. At the beginning of the episode, we heard the beginning of a letter you wrote to your son, Keenan, who was 12 at the time when you departed for your grand South Pole quest. We'll hear more of the letter later in the episode, but can you talk to me about writing it? What was that like for you? Prior to departing, you know, as a parent, you're getting ready to depart and you're making sure all of your paperwork and everything is in order in case something should happen, which we do for any kind of trip, right? Or you're just leaving, making sure that your will and everything is in order and people know where it is. And so part of that was that we wanted to have some paperwork in there that talks about, and and we did this prior to even dreaming up the South Pole, like if our guardians had to care for my son, what kind of things would we want them to do for him to continue to live the values that we have? So we had that in there. And then we I just decided I wanted to write a letter to Keenan directly if something happened to us. And one of the reasons I wrote this letter was for myself, because it really was I was struggling for like over a year of this guilt and making sure that, you know, why am I doing this? Why am I doing even today, six years later, it's hard to tell you, why am I doing this? Why am I doing this? So I wrote this letter to really be clear for myself and for my son. That letter made me cry. My dad died suddenly when I was 11, almost 12, same age as Keenan, of a heart attack. But I took with that, you have to live life to the fullest. But I can't imagine writing a letter to my future child as if I was dead. At the same time, I'm thinking, that's a really good exercise for people to do in life. What was that like for you? Writing that letter was really hard. As you can imagine, there's tears like all over the actual letter because, you know, you're just you're just coming to terms with, you know, ultimately you're coming to terms with your morality, you know, and whether you have a child or not, we, we don't know when our last day is. Yeah. Right. And you're you're just acknowledging that. And I had, you know, I had lived sort of this life. And I, and I have this blessed life where I haven't had these horrible things happen to me, but you never know when something could happen. It was not an exercise that my husband chose to do. He felt it was too, he didn't want to have to think that way. And we all have our own way of dealing with these things, right? But for me, I didn't feel complete resolution and like put that guilt away until I could do that until I could resolve feelings that might have gotten in the way of my focus. When we come back, hear about the hardest day of Chris's expedition, plus some unique challenges she faced as a middle-aged woman in the wilderness. Chris also offers great advice for conquering your fears. REI believes that every action matters especially in the fight for life outdoors. That's why REI is taking steps every day to reduce waste in the business, and they want you to join in. Make action a part of your life with the Opt to Act plan. It's 52 weeks of simple action to reduce your impact, get active, 
and leave the world better than you found it. Nature doesn't have time to wait. Opt to act. Find out more about the plan at rei.com slash opt outside. That's rei.com slash opt outside. With a wild idea like this one, every day had to be a struggle. High gusts, temperatures of 40 degrees below, and heavy sleds weren't the least of the challenges Chris and her husband faced. In her book, The Expedition, Chris writes about her whole Antarctica adventure, including day 39, the hardest day of their trek. I want to talk about the expedition. I'm really curious about the hardest part. Day 39, you write about in your book. A lot of Antarctica in traveling there is like Groundhog Day because people might not realize it's it's literally just it's just white, vast, open landscape, which makes it really monotonous and also really beautiful at the same time. By day 39, imagine every single day you getting out of your tent and going for eight to 10 hours dragging a 220-pound sled, which is getting lighter as you go. And you're on skis? We are we're on skis. And, you know, the weather is, the average is about 20 below. And as you're moving towards the pole, it's a gradual incline. The pole sits at 9,000 feet, which few people know. I had no but idea. But it's super gradual, so it seems flat. But, you know, it's hard. And there's all these different conditions of the snow that you're dealing with. It's sometimes super sticky. It feels like you're pulling through sand. It's crazy. And then there's these like weird little hills. Right. There's waves of snow, which are called sastrugi, which look like frozen waves in an ocean. As imagine it just freezes and you have to pull over those. There was 150 miles. So by day 39, we had taken one rest day out of 39 days. So imagine that in your daily life, but you're going, you know, 10 hours a day of hard work. The reason we only took one day is we had a finite amount of food and we had predicted our trip would take us 40 to 45 days. So we had 45 days of food and we could quickly project by day 30 that we aren't going fast enough. So we can't take more rest days. So we were only going about a mile or two slower than projected, but that adds up to about five days of food that we were going to be short. So we had to keep going and we had to then start rationing food a little bit to make some additional days of food. So we had 5,400 calories a day, which is like double what you would eat in normal life. And we started at about day 37, having to take a little bit away from each day. And you're already, you're burning like 8,000 a day. So you're just losing weight. You're losing weight. We, we actually put on weight before going because you knew it was going to be a losing equation. So I gained about 12 pounds of trying to muscle mass, you know, my husband gained about 15, but I was losing about a third of a pound a day and he was losing half a pound a day. Yeah. And also the stress of being your own guide, I cannot, I cannot underestimate um, in telling you how hard it is to be your own guide in a place you've never been and you've never been able to simulate that exact experience somewhere else. Like yes. The navigation part or the stress of every decision is yours to make and there is no room for error. 
so your navigating isn't so hard, but it's the conditions that you're under that you make one false move, you can lose a piece of gear to the wind, literally, and you don't you can't go get another piece of gear. If you let go of that tent in a, you know, 30 mile per hour wind, it's gone. So you have all this protocol. And so you're you're getting more and more tired. And if you don't follow these steps, you could you could do something wrong and and really put your life at risk. So that stress is always weighing on you. At the same time, your body is breaking down and you're, you're you have pushed yourself mentally and physically beyond where you've ever been. And we've pushed ourselves really hard. As ultra runners, you know, we have run for 24, 36 hours straight in a race, but you know that it's going to end. You did not know when this was going to end. And so the state of mind was a place where I've never been and at my husband at the same time. So we became these two people who were up against our own physical and mental barriers simultaneously, where normally we, we would be able to prop each other up. And throughout the expedition, we would like you'd have a bad day and I kind of help you, he'd help me. But we were both there at the same time and we were no longer able to be there for each other. You know, I actually, I was having some crying breakdowns in the tent because the stress, usually exercise was my stress reliever. And in this case, it was just causing more stress. And your body's breaking down. It needs a rest day. It needs recovery, but you can't give it the recovery you know it needs. So you're in survival mode. And as much as you want to show your love and support of your spouse, you don't have it to give and they don't have it to give to you. And so it's you're, you become, I'm not angry at my spouse but it feels tense in your relationship. And, you know, what really saved us was having our sat phone. We called in to report where we were every single day. We also had, I had a really good friend who I called once, at least once a week as just my touchstone, you know, like my, you're, you're so isolated. I can't under, you know, the isolation is crazy. It is not like being on Everest where there's lots of other teams and you can, you know, see other people. You see nothing. You are completely isolated. And 10 hours a day, you're in your own head. That's how isolating it is. And now you're butting up against the wall at the same time. And just, you know, having that phone was really the life savior for us. We, we literally had hit, hit a day where, you know, I said, maybe we should take another rest day. And Marty said, he was literally like, if we take a rest day, we're never going to make it. If that's what you need to do, you know, this kind of thing, which was not our normal way of being with each other. And we were like, he said, well, let's call somebody and see what they think outside the tent. So we call my friend. Her name's Lenny. And she's a good running friend of mine. And she sort of just talked us down. You know, you're at like mile 70 of a hundred mile race, Chris. This is the low point. This is where you just have to dig deep. You know, you can do this everything gets better. You know, those mantras you tell yourself, just keep moving forward. You know, everything will get better in the morning. These kinds of things where you just have to move through and don't, you know, we never thought we'd stop, but it just was such a otherworldly experience. Okay. So that was one mantra. I mean, how did you do it? How did you keep going? What did you say to yourself? I literally would say mind over body, mind over body, mind over body, because it was such a mental exercise. There were there were so many people who have tried this who had probably, you know, superhuman physical powers who haven't done it, who haven't been able to complete it. And it's it becomes a mental battle. And that's really what gets you through belief in yourself, mind over body. Did you listen to music? 
podcasts? I did. Um, there were certain days where we would listen to podcasts or music and other days when the, the conditions were so horrendous, you just wanted yep. complete focus. focus. Yeah. And on top of that, you're in your late forties and you're going through hot flashes. Oh my gosh. Yes. <laughs> I have so much to look forward to. <laughs> Tell me about it. <laughs> in the most freezing of cold conditions, that must've been, I'm telling you, you know, women out there, it's different for everybody if you haven't gone through menopause, but you know, I was in my late forties. It was sort of pre-menopause and everything is kind of wacky. So your body is having these hot flashes. And for me, it was like starts in your chest and kind of just spreads through your body and it lasts for like a minute or two, but you're just like on fire. But in Antarctica, you have to have everything covered at all times because you're worried about um, getting frostbite. So those were like little torture zaps, you know, you're going along and, you know, I would just have this hot flash and I literally have to stop. You know, you don't want to stop because you can't, you're following your, your partner. So we would be in a single file. So if he was in front of me, I would just sort of wait and hope that it would just wash over me and then I could kind of catch up. But it was literally, uh, you know, at night, sometimes it would happen. That's more frequent. And so you're in your sleeping bag and you're cold and then, you, and then you're just like, I'm, I'm dying. And then you're just like, ah, I'm sweating to death. And then it, so it really disrupted my sleep a lot, which, you know, then I actually had my period that just went on and on while I was there. And that was a whole episode of learning to deal with that. What did you do? Well, you know, if you would like to know like specific details, I, I'm happy to tell you. Okay, Go for okay. It. So before leaving, I was like, you know, do I, do, you know, because this is something it's, I actually wrote about in my book because people don't talk about it. Yeah, I think we should talk about it. I have a lot of friends who are adventurers and like that's the biggest question I have is what do I do if I'm doing this like month long journey and I get my period? Right. So you, you definitely have to prepare by bringing supplies. So, you know, you're bringing tampons. But in this case, I was like two months in tampons and 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 so what was happening also for my body and is common with other women is that you end up having these really, 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 really heavy periods that are not like normal because your body is trying to figure out how to like yep. shut itself down eventually. So that was happening. And I had pre decided I'd done all this research and there was these I, I didn't want to carry so many tampons because you have to moon keep, cup yeah so it was the the I diva cup the yeah. diva cup the diva cup so okay. I read about it and I was like never tried it and I was like hey this is cool I'm gonna try this so intimidating but people swear by them they're great yeah so that's what I used yeah and I brought I brought two of them because I was like worried what if something happens to it and they're light you know lightweight silicone and you could wash it with the hot water and and that's what I used I did encounter one really like wasn't able to test it exact conditions so like 20 below and i'm outside trying to just pull that thing out and i couldn't get a hold of it and it was like three two one my hands are frozen oh my god and then that's when the you know swearing started because i'm like oh my gosh i can't get the stupid thing out and then i dive in the tent and i'm in the vestibule and marty is like oh what is happening <laughs> Because normally our men in our lives don't have to be intimately involved in everything that's happening to us and our bodies. And I'm literally squatting in the vestibule. I'm like, I have to get this thing out. And I'm, you know, like, because now that my hand's a little warmer, I could sort of get it. And like, that is like my worst nightmare. It was a nightmare. It was a nightmare. And then I got it out and it's sort of like crime it was scene? a little, uh, it was a crime scene. It was a total crime scene. And my Sorry. husband's like, Rrr! But we cleaned everything up and everything was okay. And then I figured out how to get it out. I just had to learn like how to get it out of my body, kind of like bearing down, like having a child or something, like kind of push it out. And then everything was good. It was really good. 
free men listening, it's all good. <laughs> or the highlights like, especially when you, you made it. So those are two questions, but the highlights are really those moments that any of us who have been in uh, any kind of activity, whether it's art or where you really get in the flow, but you're, and you're in an environment that's so beautiful and, or you were just, you're just floating through a magical environment, you know, where you are surrounded by nature, you're one with everything, you, you hours melt, you don't even know that you've been moving, that happened. Or you stand and you're just turning 360 degrees and you're looking at this wilderness that is the most profound place you've ever seen. And it's not windy and it's silent. And I, my whole relationship with silence changed because I, I learned that, you know, silence isn't to be filled, it's to be felt. And everything that's in the silence was always there, but I didn't know it. I love what you just said. Silence isn't to be filled. It's to be felt. I came back and I stopped using my headphones running. Kind of not on purpose. It just started happening. Because sometimes you're feeling, you know, that, oh, I'm doing this because I have this on my schedule because I need to go do this race. So I have to put this in many miles in. And I sort of let go a lot of that. And just became more one with what was happening in the moment and just more tuned in to, to the moment, to being present and not worrying about what if so much. Your other part of the question was, you know, how did it feel when we got there? And when we got there, it was just, again, it was, it was so surreal because listeners may not know that at the South Pole is an actual scientific base. So there's a man-made object. So for 48 days, you've seen nothing but white and a blue sky. And all of a sudden, there's objects on the horizon. And literally, I saw a, a dot the day before we arrived. And I'm like, that glint looks like something that's not snow. And it was just a little dot. And we pulled out our GPS. And we were 16 miles away from the pole. And we could see the start of the pole, 16 miles away. And you're on a glacier, so it's undulating. So it's kind of in and out of view. But suddenly you're just you're just beelining with all of your might towards, I don't have to look at my compass anymore. I can just follow the little dot that's growing over time. It was really interesting. The last day was the hardest. It was like Antarctica just decided we're going to test you to the limit. And, you know, you're going to, you can't, you're not there. You still have a day you know, and it was 50 below and the wind was howling. And if you read any history books, you may have learned that Scott's team, who was trying to become the first to the pole, a British team, they perished 13 miles from their next depot of food. We had 11 miles to get to the pole our last day. And you're just like, it's just like coming off a mountain. You're not there till you're there. And we were so cold and we had some mishaps that day that Marty's hands were super freezing and we just never took a break. And we just, but once we were within like a mile and you know, you're going to be there, it was all like tears in the goggles, just overwhelming feeling of completion and satisfaction and pride. And what we did was as we saw the pole and we were almost there, Marty was like, let's call Keenan and have him on the phone as we actually arrive at the pole. 
And so that's what we did. Our hands were like little clumps, didn't work. And we're trying to call. And my sister was there with him. She answered. It was a Saturday. He was home from school. And we're like, Kenan, we're at the pool. And, you know, we're just screaming in the phone. And, you know, he was so excited. It was, it was, we were just bawling and it was hard to tell what he was doing. But to just have that moment of, of him being there with us at that moment was spectacular. It was, you know, we didn't think we were going to do that. And they just sort of spontaneously happened. And it was sort of like this really awesome reunion, even though he wasn't there with us. So that was spectacular. While Chris and Marty completed their expedition to the South Pole in early 2014, she came out with a book late last year called The Expedition. Two parents risk life and family in an extraordinary quest to the South Pole. It's all about the nitty gritty details of the trip, but the book also talks about weighing the responsibility of parenthood against the possibility of one more grand adventure. They also dive into their preparations, the dangers they encountered, and so much more. Chris, why did you decide to write this book of your journey? You know, I really wanted to capture all of what happened, most importantly for my son, because he was only 12 at the time. And even though we we blogged every single day and people followed us on our journey uh, doing that, we were hot. You know, we, we didn't have the whole story. So for him, and um, ultimately what kept me coming back was to, I want to inspire others to see what, you know, what is your South Pole and how can you get there? Because this book really isn't about trying to inspire you to go to the South Pole because few people want to do that. But there's a lot of people who want to understand my motivations, our motivations. And really, I've heard from many, many readers now that just to connect with the desire to have an adventurous life because you can do it in so many different ways every day. I love that you just said, what is yourself, Paul? That's such a good question to ask people. Any advice to listeners who want to do something wild, go on an adventure? Maybe it's not struck across the South Pole. Maybe it's a marathon in their own hometown. Any advice on, on how to just get over that fear and start. I believe that the the biggest the power that you have to get over fear is accessed by your ability to envision that thing which which you really want. So if you can embrace that vision so much and see yourself there so much and you really have like what's what's my motivation what's my purpose why do I really want that so bad it powers you through those fears and also identifying what is that underlying fear is it fear of failure is it fear of judgment is it fear of the unknown I believe so much of it is fear of unknown well those three are really big actually and what happens is in my experience is that fear is really a light, a light, it's a tapping of you saying, hey, you should do this because it's like a key to open a door to a part of yourself that you want to access and you don't know how else to access it, but to go through this thing that you're attracted to. And you're going to find these parts of yourself that are so amazing. And those things are what the world needs. And that's going to make you feel alive. 
You're someone who's not afraid to be vulnerable. How did adventure help you become more vulnerable or how did how does being vulnerable help you in adventure? Being vulnerable in adventure is great because adventure pushes you to these limits. They open you up and you know out of your comfort zone and make you go to these new places in yourself. And if you block that vulnerability, then you block that growth, I think. Chris, this has been such a pleasure. We've made it to the wild round. This is new this year. We ask you <laughs> rapid-fired questions that are a little wild and all over the place. So I'm especially curious, you know, what sort of dehydrated meals did you eat on the trip? We tested every single possible dehydrated meal out there. And it turns out one of my favorites is the breakfast skillet, Mountain House, that we ate for breakfast and dinner. How did you sleep in broad daylight since it's light 24-7 there? Yeah, you slept with a, a hat pulled over your eyes. What song played most in your head while you were trekking across the South Pole? Oh, my gosh. I don't know, but my husband, I'm sure he... Uh, he his song was Back in Black by ACDC. Awesome. I can tell what kind of guy your husband is. <laughs> That's funny. Gear that when you're hiking today, you never leave home without. Even on short hikes, I'm always wearing like a little vest. And I always, I now always carry my phone, which I never used to bring my phone because of its ability for GPS and other Everybody kinds Everybody says of, your phone's the best piece of gear, even yeah. though we hate having it in yeah, the wild. I used to not it's carry also it. the best. Mm -hmm. yeah. What was the best thing you had with you in the South Pole? our satellite phone. Mm. Writing a book is no easy task. Quick tips on what got you through it. They're the exact same as getting through any kind of hard adventure. And it is being consistent every single day or whatever your, whatever your plan is for getting that big goal. You have to be consistent. You have to put the hard time in and using that why as your motivation for when you, when you cannot get yourself to go sit down. It's like, okay, why am I doing this again? And my why for the book really seriously was I want my son to have the full story. Oh. Since you're a writer, you're obviously probably a reader. What's the book that you go to most often? I don't have one that I go to most often, but I really love a lot of what Brené Brown writes about. And when she, when I read Daring Greatly, it just was like, oh my gosh, I feel like I could have written this book. It just, just spoke to every single way that I think. You are kind of like, Brene Brown, if Brene Brown trekked across the South Pole with her husband. <laughs> Brene, I hope That's you're listening to this one. Yeah. What's the best advice you've ever received? Okay, this is this just popped in my head. I don't know if it's the best, but people ask, how do you get through something really hard? And it's, you know, I say it's 90% mental and the other 10% is mental. The best advice is, is being in touch with your mindset because that is what's going to empower you. What's your next adventure? Do you guys have one? Well, my son graduates in June from high school and we asked him, do you want to go on a trip? What do you want to do? And so we're heading out two weeks after he graduates, we're heading over to Europe and we're going to um, do the circumnavigation of um, Mont Blanc, the, the Tour de Mont Blanc. So that's actually, my husband and I had run that in that race before, but now we're going to take it, you know, hiking and my son loves great food. So, he's, so we're like, we're going to hike all day and then end up in these nice villages and eat awesome food. And drink yummy beer. 
Yeah. <laughs> He'll be okay to drink in Europe. I know, right? You guys are the coolest parents ever. Since their adventure in 2014, there's been some different kind of challenges that Chris's family has encountered. In 2016, just two years after they returned from Antarctica, Chris's husband Marty was diagnosed with squamous cell carcinoma. It's a form of skin cancer that spread to his lymph nodes and lungs, and he's currently living with stage four cancer. But this is not a family that lets anything hold them back. Six months after the diagnosis, the family went trekking in the Himalayas. Chris said the trip centered them. It helped them redefine their family around adventure rather than cancer. In 2019, Chris, Marty, and a friend, Captain Danny, raced from Port Townsend, Washington to Ketchikan, Alaska on a 30-foot Hawaiian outrigger sailing canoe. Their son, Keenan, he's now 17 and he's taken several trips with his family. In watching his parents and joining them on adventures through the Grand Canyon on a raft, hiking in Nepal, and biking through Tanzania, Keenan's learned a lot not only about self-reliance, but how far a positive outlook on life can take you. This family lives every day to the fullest. They're always dreaming of their next big adventure. I can learn a lot from them. I think we all can. Thanks so much to Chris Fagan. Chris, it was such a pleasure to meet with you, talk with you in person in Seattle, and go to places I've never gone before in an interview. You can get Chris's book, The Expedition, Two Parents Risk Life and Family in an Extraordinary Quest to the South Pole on REI.com and in select REI stores. Be sure to check it out. It's an unbelievable story. And of course, she dives a lot deeper than this conversation goes. Tune in week after next for a conversation with pro snowboarder and founder of Protect Our Winters and Jones Snowboards, Jeremy Jones. Wild Ideas Worth Living is part of the REI Podcast Network. It's hosted and created by me, Shelby Stanger, with writing and editing by Annie Fassler and production by Chelsea Davis. As always, we appreciate when you hit subscribe, rate, and review the show wherever you listen. And remember, some of the best adventures often happen when you follow your wildest ideas. If I hadn't chosen Antarctica, then I might have been trail running on a mountain in Patagonia or climbing an unnamed mountain in Nepal or sailing on the Pacific with friends. You may have been there too. You see, don't be afraid of what will happen if you challenge yourself. You must do the things you think you cannot do. You must live and use your gifts to the fullest to share your light with the world. You never know what day will be your last, so don't wait for the perfect moment to step out and into your full self. My wish for you in life is that you find your own path to being fully alive. Please promise me to live every day. Keen and I spent 12 glorious years with you, my best years. I know your character, I see your heart. You are destined to do great things in this world. I know you'll be true to yourself. I will be watching you and with you every step of the way. All my love, Mom.